Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Friday. It's June the 30th. It is the end of what we've called Family Pride Month. I've got my buddy, the real Steve Friend, joining me for today's show. And uh, what we're going to be doing is talking about a couple of important topics. We're going to be talking about some Democrats that think that abortion is acceptable, including those who are Catholic. So we're going to do that. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, the Biden burner phone. Maybe he doesn't know how a burner works. We can talk about what we call OPSEC or operational security. And uh, we're going to get into that SCOTUS decision about affirmative action. So that's what's coming up. Stick around for that. First, uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. I'm very appreciative that you're here for Friendly Friday. Good, man. It's, it's all good. After last week's hiatus, I'm glad to be back on the Kyle Surfing Show. For sure. And we are glad to have you back. Let me say a quick thank you to uh, our sponsors. First of all, um, I actually pulled some of today's articles right out of the loop. So I'm going to say thanks to Catholic Vote real quickly. Uh, Ryan, we're going to throw this up on the screen here. So uh, thanks to Catholic Vote. This is America's top advocacy organization. They sponsor the Kyle Serafin Show. You can sign up for the loop where I pulled two, two of their uh, fantastic Little uh, daily setups from this is their their email chain. You can see down there on the screen. If you're watching on the Rumble channel, you type in your email, you type in your zip code. They will give you timely and useful information that you can go out into the world with, kind of prep you for your day. If you're not listening to the Kyle Serafin show or if you're on, uh, let's say, Tuesday and Thursday when we're not around, you've got that option. And then I'll also say a quick thank you to our other sponsor here. There's one of my there's my Tumblr. This is my Gen 1 this is the one that took with me on surveillance. This is, ooh, did you hear that? It's it's solid steel. Uh, this is the uh, Patriot Coolers. You can go to patriotcoolers.com. Again, patriotcoolers.com. The promo code is Kyle. It's K-Y-L-E. K-Y-L-E gets you 10% off. 50 bucks or more, you're getting free shipping. You can see on here if you're watching our channel, bikinis, pool parties, floating coolers with that soft-sided one. I think that's what they call the 24-pack. I think I got 17 bottles in there and uh, with ice. When I was doing it, filling up mine. So a great product, a great company. Again, promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, will get you that 10% off. All right, let's launch into this. Um, we got producer Ryan running things right now. Steve, did you know that Phil has a real daytime job and uh, he can't do this all the time with me? Were you aware of that? Yeah, I was. And it's it's, it's a crying shame, man, because uh, producer Phil is, uh, is an OG suspendable. But uh, respect to him for actually earning a living for a living. <laughs> <laughs> doing things in the world like most people do instead um, of playing around like you and me all day long yeah we tend to play around all right so let's talk about playing around uh you initially had came come to me and told me that you thought that we should try to take back quote-unquote pride month with family pride month i had somebody in the dark delight podcast who uh was in the chat and they suggested we should call it humility month as opposed to pride i'm kind of into that i think families have to have a little bit of humility um here's here's where we are in this 2023 last night my son, who's two, was on the floor, on his belly, and he told me, Daddy, I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm a baby shark. And so, of course, I had to tweet out that now we're going to have to transition him over. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Do you have any good ichthyologists down there in Florida that we can uh, transition my son? The, the gilloplasty sounds like a problem. Well, I mean, Daytona Beach is the shark capital of America. But uh, I, I did respond to your tweet. I saw that. And I, I will note that you're raising a trans great white. So that, in fact, makes you a racist. I knew it. As, sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. 
<laughs> oh, it's so silly. All right. Um, let's talk about uh, other things that make no sense and talk about racism here. Uh, Ryan, if you'll put up um, article number one, story number one here, we're going to be reading right from Catholic Votes um, article. And this is CatholicVote.org tells us that there are 30 self-professed Catholic Democrats. I'm going to make the argument that there is no such thing as a Catholic Democrat. You cannot be those two things at the same time. Um, kind of like the uh, left likes to say you can't be a black racist, right? Uh, slightly different because this is actually true. They've written a pro-abortion statement. This is coming from the the Catholic Vote newsfeed, which they are now originating a lot of their own stories. On the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, we've got pro-abortion representative Rosa DeLorio. She's a Democrat from Connecticut. Nothing good coming out of Connecticut, apparently. Um, they have some pretty outstanding and useless elected representatives. This one penned a renewed statement of principles defending the so-called right to abortion, which we all know was a uh, not a right in the first place. It was a terrible court decision. Uh, the woman is 80 years old. She was first elected to Congress when I was nine in 1990, and she tweeted a joint statement. Uh, she identifies herself as Catholic, raised, and confirmed. Um, that is not a Catholic situation. You don't get to be behind abortion. We actually used to knew this, know this in this country. It was the old safe, legal, and rare situation. Long crime congressman, she argued, and her co-signatories also said they have these radical pro-abortion views. Isn't it amazing that a woman who can't even get pregnant anymore suddenly has radical abortion views? I'm going to read a little bit from their statement. It said, as Catholic Democrats serving in the houses of representative, we are proud that we are part of a faithful, pro-choice, Catholic majority, 68% of whom supported the legal protections of abortion access enshrined in Roe, and 63% of whom think abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Our faithful, or I'm sorry, our faith unfailingly promotes the common good and prioritizes the dignity of every human being and highlights the need to provide for a collective safety net to our most vulnerable. All right, so we could throw that show down. We could bring Steve back up here. Steve, uh, you're not Catholic, but you are Catholic adjacent. There's Ryan. Look at that guy. <laughs> hey, Ryan. Sorry, sorry about that. Wrong one. Wrong scene. I Good enjoyed that. We're glad to see you there. So here's the fun thing. Catholic adjacent, Christian in general, can anybody hold those positions and then also hold this sort of like radical abortion position where all lives can be taken before the, the moment they pass through the birth canal? No, no, you can't. It, and look, that's that's just your perspective and your view on things. I, I mean, let's just take it out of the abortion slash Christianity realm. You can't say that you are a fully, wholly committed vegan and you embrace that lifestyle. And then uh, and the second sentence out of your mouth is you're going to talk about the virtues of eating meat. You're just not a subscriber to veganism at that point. And frankly, the people that are within the vegan community will probably come at you harder than, than the people in the Catholic community are going after these pro-abortion yeah. activists. That's but so true. Just, it's just, let's, I mean, just take away the politics of that hypersensitive issue to this. And I mean, like, yeah, I, I would never claim to be a vegan if I was eating steak and eggs for breakfast. Well, if you were a Democrat, you could do that probably. Yes, yes. And I mean, and, and what they're doing is they're wrapping themselves in the long and tried and true history of the things that they do like about Catholic or Christianity in general, where they can say, you know, I'm going to feed the hungry and, and care for my fellow man. And they're going to use that to further their own ends. And it's it's gross. It's it's no different than blackface is or the, the tranny madness is or the drag queens where they're adopting certain elements of a lifestyle that they don't either agree with or could never actually fulfill and using them to, to further arguments that they want and, and sort of bastardizing those beliefs. Is it clout chasing? 
I think so. I mean, I think it's also an appeal to authority. I mean, you'll you'll see Nancy Pelosi. She's she's she cannot ever make a point without saying, as a mother of five within six years, whenever she's about to make an abortion argument, mm-hmm. it's it's an well. I have this authority because I have born children. I think I should be able to end the life of any other child on earth, or advocate for other people's right to do so. Correct. So my I I can't remember how many weeks. I think we're thirty two weeks right now, something like that. So we're coming up on the. We're coming up on the end period, and you know, my wife Death's has got this. One. Yeah, she's got the she's got the uh, the beach ball right that she's hiding under her shirt, and uh, you know, you feel the the child moving around in there. Our daughter is is uh, kicking and and hiccuping and doing all the things that that a person could do, and she could survive. And these people are making the argument that uh, that is a perfectly reasonable time to end the pregnancy, and there should be no consequences for it, and that there, we should have no problem with it because it's morally good for them. And they're always hearkening back to the Roe decision, which had nothing to do with late-term abortion that they're advocating for in, right. in Roe. I mean, that was very early by all any stretch where they, eventually they evolved into this trimester sort of evaluation. But uh, we're, we're pushing back on a 15-week abortion ban. That's that's four months. That's roughly halfway, a little before halfway through the process. But these people are arguing that, well— as long as the umbilical cord hasn't been severed, even though the baby's body is fully removed from the mother, um, that's still a woman's right to choose to end that life. And, and that's you can't say that, well, that's consistent with Roe. Right, because that was a, there was a viability standard in Roe. Not that, they, yeah. not that they knew what that was. And obviously, as science has gone on, theoretically, the, the viability standard would get rolled back further because we have more and more um, you know, premature babies being born that are more viable. Yeah, and that's always been the the, the push of, of the the science for the people who are um you, you are, are going to I think politically tend to be science is their god and they're they're going to look at it from a very sterile uh way and you would think that they'll probably be more advocating for the the abortion argument side of things. Um the, the, the fact of the matter is that they're pushing um, these processes that are actually going to make viability earlier and earlier. And I, I think we're going to get to a point, actually, where you're going to have these external wombs, almost like the matrix, and the argument for abortion will effectively be gone at that point because you can't say, well, it's uh, it's in my body, my choice. Well, it won't be your body. It'll be an artificial womb outside of your body. I don't body. No, I don't either. Okay. But I mean, <laughs> we'll let we'll let women weigh in. Uh, women uh, in the chat, if you want to weigh in on that, do you want an external womb or do you want to still have the magic of pregnancy? It is one of the incredible superpowers of women. And uh, I just brought this up with Tracy Beans just a second ago. She said, uh, you know, should women not be in law enforcement because they can't pee in a bottle? And I said, look, I'm not arguing one way or another, although there's a strong argument to be made that if you can't do the basic tasks of surveillance, maybe it's not good for you. Going out as a as a, uh, a law enforcement officer in a predominantly like nasty black neighborhood when you're like a white or an Asian female, it, it's weird. And trying to find a pee place at like a 7-Eleven, like you are going to highlight yourself. So maybe that's not good. Maybe there's no place for you on that team, although they're super helpful for blending in. Um, but if you're going to try to compare my ability to pee in a bottle, which I consider to be a very low a low superpower, if a power at all, to a woman being able to create life, carry it around, and then uh, and bear it into the world. Like I don't, I don't know if I'd want to give that that sort of opportunity up. Like it's pretty amazing. I don't, I don't know if that's that's a strong argument for for women in the uh, in the violent sphere of workplaces like law enforcement or military. Um, I've always said that uh, the position of think think of military. Uh, we we don't want women on the front lines. It has nothing to do with 
oh, we don't think you can do the job. I, I think you should just accept the fact that we think you're more valuable than we are. We're expendable. It's always like been you that have way. you have a magic superpower that you can hold a life inside you. I don't have that. Um, and therefore I'm a pawn on the chessboard. You're the queen. You, you have to be protected. So like throw me into the meat grinder and we're going to protect you. And, as, and I, it's not that I'm saying that you can't do it or, or that I'm better than you. Like I, I'm just expendable. Yeah. In a biological sense, I think that's very true. Right. And it, what's funny is that we've always known that for thousands of years, men and young men have been the ones who waged war, who engaged in violence because that was the capability that they had. Because even though that they can run around and share seed everywhere, like the, the number of places that could receive, like the fertile garden is really the thing that you protect. You protect that sort of thing uh, in front of your village. I don't know, man. How do we get so sideways? How do we get so sideways where we got dudes that are naked walking around or like riding their bicycles in front of little kids? And like, that's what has to be celebrated in this country and abortion until, you know, the second before they're, they, they breach the, uh, you know, the physical world that we're all part of. That's why we got to convert it back to life month, man. We should be celebrating life month in June. You know, last weekend was the anniversary of the overturning of Roe. Um, I'm, I'm, I can't take credit for this. I heard that another person put this out, but I thought it was an excellent point. June should become life month. It should be messaged that way. And we should embrace a rainbow symbol, the covenant of God to Noah, that uh, he would no longer wipe out the earth in a flood again. And uh, we should wave rainbow flags, maybe with some baby feet uh, emblazoned across them. And uh, therefore, when you're walking down the street in the month of June, you can say, hey, that's a great life flag that you got waving there. I do. I agree. Let's uh, let's look at a response here. Uh, Ryan, if you pull up uh, story 1A here, we've got the U.S. bishops. They are rebuking these Democrats for invoking Catholicism to justify abortion. So that's pretty helpful. Um, what we see is that uh, the United States bishops, a group of them, came forward towards those Catholic lawmakers. They signed a letter claiming that uh, the Catholic teachings do not support legal abortion. Uh, so that's fantastic. We've got Archbishop Timothy Brolio. He's the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So this is this is the big group, and they're pushing forward. They've got my former bishop, which is Michael Burbridge in Arlington, Virginia, going out there and saying, yeah, you you can't be a Catholic and also justify your position on abortion. Here's their actual quote. It says, members of Congress who recently invoked teachings of the Catholic faith itself as justifying abortion or supporting a supposed right to abortion, grievously distort the faith. I like that. That's an actual great way to say that. Uh, it is wrong and incoherent to claim that the taking of innocent human life at its most vulnerable stage can ever be consistent with the values of supporting the dignity and well-being of those in need. That's the United States Bishops Conference. Um, it's about time that some of these guys took a stand, and a lot of them have been unwilling to do that for a long time, I think. It's it's uh, it's kind of refreshing. I think I think people took a lot of hits. Religious people took a lot of hits. Congregations took a lot of hits during sort of the COVID shutdowns. And they're realizing that people don't want mealy-mouthed, soft religious communities that are willing to fall over for the police, that the job is to take uh, something a little bit more hardline, and that faith was never supposed to be easy. No one ever said it was. Steve, any—I um, oh, will bring Steve back up, sorry. Uh, any any thoughts on sort of the, the renewed fervor, the renewed sense of— taking a stand and, and maybe you lose some followers, but you gain the the respect of those that are really there that are devout? Uh, yeah, I'm all in for that. I, I think that the days of the, the pleated khaki sweater vest and occasionally Hawaiian shirt wearing minister, and uh, you should come because we have a great coffee bar and daycare service to your kids and we play great music, uh, that gets somebody out of bed on a Sunday morning once, 
maybe. Mm -hmm. But if you want to have people that want a real, true connection with their, with the with the divine, uh, it's going to have to be uh, steak, not Doritos. It's going to have to really challenge them and be scripturally based, and and that's why you see that uh, that push for the Latin Mass. It's and it's pretty high amongst young. Catholics, that from what I understand, that people are attending those masses. It's not just the 85-year-old woman. It's young families that are going to that, too, because there's actually a true desire that they're seeking that in their life. They recognize that there's a God-shaped hole in their heart. And I also think that there's a, an element of this that is the, the, the culture war that we've seen going on. There's been a successful pushback, be it the boycott of Bud Light because they put Dylan Mulvaney on a can, but uh, even the, the L.A. Dodgers, where they were going to have the uh, the blasphemous group come out and be recognized before the game, and thousands of people stood outside the stadium uh, to protest. And I, th I think that really, really, maybe they're taking their cue from their potential congregation out there, saying like, okay, there's an appetite for seriousness here. We don't necessarily have to be the kinder, gentler uh, church. We can just push the message that uh, we've always been called to do. Yeah, and also, not only was there a, thousands of people standing out in the streets, but it was in Los Angeles, of all places, which we kind of think of as ceded territory for conservatives and for Christians and for Catholics. It doesn't seem like the kind of place, even though it's literally the City of Angels, it has a, it has a godlike name. It comes from the, uh, the missionaries who went and founded those original settlements. Kind of funny. Um, I know you're not Catholic, but you're Catholic adjacent in so many ways. Will you remind people sort of your connections to this? Because it's kind of funny that uh, we're weighing in on this sort of stuff. But I, I, you do speak from a place, I think, of authority. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I have uh, my mom's side of the family is Jewish. My dad's side of the family is Catholic. It's consistent with my mom's side of the family. She had uh, three brothers, all of them married Catholics. So mixed families on that side. And then uh, we'll probably get into the, the college admissions thing uh, later on in this conversation. But uh, proud graduate of the University of Notre Dame, which uh, allegedly at some point was a Catholic institution. I think it's uh, yeah. arguable at this point. Uh, but uh, I've attended many a mass there. I was a, a resident assistant in my dorm. So we, you know, we would go to mass every Sunday um, and uh, been through that, that process and, then, and really have a great affection for it. Makes sense to me. All right, we're going to uh, kind of turn over to this next topic. Uh, we're going to get to the Supreme Court at the end here, so we'll, we'll touch back on college admissions, which I think is useful. But let's talk about, um, let's talk about OPSEC. Tell people what OPSEC means, and then we're going to play a, a couple of little fun things from our buddy Miranda Devine. We'll play a video, and then we'll, we'll discuss it. Operational security. And uh, you, know, you hear about you know, situational awareness and, and just basically – protecting the uh, the information that you're privy to and not allowing infiltration you don't want you want to take all necessary measures to to know that you're you are in possession of something that uh, nefarious actors might want to have uh, or have contact with you because of that information uh, and uh, you know, certainly having a burner phone is is a component to that so we see uh, we see that amongst people who are wanting to hide from uh, from the public view now uh, you've run sources, I'm imagining. Probably not a ton on the Indian res, but you had to have some. Yeah. That's that's a requirement. Did you have ways to communicate with them that were non-attributable, we'll say? Um, or just no, Facebook Messenger? Yeah, just Facebook <laughs> Messenger and text message. Uh, but uh, allegedly, I mean, we would when we were going to meet and actually it would, it would be connection to, hey, let's meet up. We, we kind of had a predetermined place we were going to go to um, so that it wouldn't be 
publicized. Mm-hmm. And so we would know where we were going to go. We wouldn't be saying like, hey, meet me behind the Arby's at 1.30 this afternoon. Right. Just like that one spot. place that we did last time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Something you agree on in person. Uh, something that's less attributable. Did you ever go buy source phones, burner phones for people? Was that something that you ever got involved in? Uh, no, we looked into doing that, though, for... Um, for victims as as well as sources, oh, yeah. we were we were in the process of doing that and then getting maybe even like a burner Facebook account and things for them uh, to have communication because it was it was actually it was a consideration we wanted to keep them protected. Definitely. So I'll tell you a fun story. My, my guys, uh, we all decided that we were going to go get source phones at the same time. It's a lot easier if you all go at once. Um, you know, then you just kind of deal the weirdness at at the same time. And also maybe there's some plausible deniability. So. Me and two of the guys that were on my squad working counterintelligence went down to this store. I want to say it was like a, it was like an AT&T store. And, um, so we go in there and we pick out the phone and first you got all these like requirements. You can't buy the ones that are made by the Chinese companies. So you got to find a Korean made phone, which generally is like a Samsung. So there's stipulations and then you don't want to spend a ton of money on a phone because you're going to end up throwing it away. So we go and we, we go into the store, we pick out the Samsung we like, and it's like, you know, one of those galaxy budget models. And we go up to the dude and we're like, look, I want pay as you go. I need a year's worth of protection for the minutes. And then I want to put however many minutes on there. And the whole thing was like $153 and change. So perfect. So that's exactly what we all have, you know, $200 or 260 bucks in our pocket to go do this deal. So we go in and the guy goes, okay, yeah, I just need to set up your account. It's like, yeah, no problem. And he goes, uh, and what's your name? And I, and I go, AT&T customer. <laughs> and he goes, well, uh, no, I need to put a name on there. And I was like, I understand. And he goes, what's the name again? And I said, AT&T customer. That's the name. That's right. And he goes, well, what's your name? And I said, AT&T customer. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you not understanding? So he looks at me really, really weird. And he types this in. And I was like, that's the name I'm prepared to give to you. And he's like, got it. So he types that thing out. You know, he gives me my phone, activates the plan, whatever. I stand next to it. My buddy Miles steps up. Miles gets in there, does the whole routine. What's the name for the account? AT&T customer. He got slightly less pushback at that point. So he goes through. So now we got two phones bought. And then we get this guy, Chris, on the squad. He goes up and he buys his. Also, AT&T customer. So he buys AT&T customer. And uh, and now this dude is looking. And he's not sure. Are these two, you know, that we're all wearing, you know, dress shirts and slacks and nice shoes. Is this a group of young, white drug dealers in Washington, D.C.? Or did I just like facilitate like a, a down low organization of guys that are running behind their wives' backs because he's looking at us and Miles is good looking and Chris is relatively good looking. So it's these like three youngish fit guys that are all AT&T customer <laughs> buying that. And and that's that's the funniest part about it because the most people that are buying these are drug dealers. They tend to have a pretty good idea of, of operational security. And then people who are having affairs. That's the classic reasons for burner accounts. I don't know if there's any other great ones that are out there other than FBI agents and spies. No, I mean I think we've seen the the burner like Twitter accounts that like celebrities and stuff will use to uh, to hype their own material and, and try to not look like they're hyping their own material. Yeah, self liking and stuff. Yes, but I mean, for, as far as the, the phone itself, yeah, I mean, you just there's the classic the wire man where they sent the, the kid out to like all different gas stations around the area to go buy a bunch of flip phones that they could use that's that what was, you do that was why yeah so the key is uh, you decentralize it from where you normally spend time and then uh, you don't attribute it to a name and you buy it in cash so that's the classic pieces of a burner phone folks if you've been wondering how to get a burner phone what is the right way to do it that's the opsec behind a burner phone and uh let's talk about burner phones a little bit right now let's bring up Should go ahead not have your son pay for it. It turns out having it attributed to your son is not going to be helpful because then you're going to end up with a new story like this if we'll go to video number one. 
Peter, you broke a lot of this years ago uh, about the Biden family influence peddling. And you've got new information this morning, uh, breaking news on a cell phone that Joe Biden was using. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. What is the line of communications between Hunter Biden and his business partners and Joe Biden when he's vice president of the United States? It's not the government phone. It's not Joe Biden's personal phone. We know from the laptop that Hunter Biden's business paid for a private phone line that Joe Biden used while he was vice president. It was from AT&T. It was $300 a month. It was a global phone where you could access somebody anywhere around the world. Uh, we shared that phone number and that account information with people at the House Oversight Committee. My hope is that, that they haven't already. They will subpoena those records because I think it will give an indication on how tight the communication was. Uh, and that may be the phone for example, that the Ukrainian, the Burisma executive might have used uh, in this allegation uh, that he talked to Joe Biden in re recorded conversations. I, I would just say one other thing, Marie, as it relates to that sort of shakedown phone call with Henry Zhao uh, that we alluded to, Henry Zhao in 2015 had already sent $5 million to the Bidens. Uh, he was the head of a harvest investment firm. Uh, and what's interesting is in the correspondence there, Hunter Biden again talks to Zhao in the context of this is a deal that's important to my family uh, involving his father. Let's also keep in mind we fixate on the criminal element of this. We also have to focus on the espionage element of this. Henry Zhao paid $5 million to Hunter Biden from an account that was part of a company that he co-owned with the family of the Minister of State Security of China, who's in charge of the entire spy apparatus. And you see that in every deal that Hunter Biden did in China, these individuals that are sending him money have ties to Chinese intelligence. Unbelievable. We have to take a quick break and then talk more about All right, so uh, here we go. This is uh, Peter Schweitzer. We didn't actually didn't hear from Miranda Devine, although she sat there and looked nice uh, in that particular clip. And uh, investigative journalist, he's the author of Clinton Cash, which was a, an indictment of a, the way that the Clintons did business. Uh, people have sort of impugned him as a right-wing operative, and yet uh, bringing forth this sort of credible allegation that there was this, once again, AT&T phone, which should have been listed to AT&T customer, maybe it was, uh, sort of this global burner phone that was a sat phone, apparently $300 a month to be able to make that thing happen. And so I've got this article in front of me. I'm going to pull this thing up, Steve. I'll read a little bit, and then we'll talk about it in a little bit further. But if uh, you'll bring up that uh, story number two, there we are. This is from Zero Hedge. Folks, if you haven't seen ZeroHedge.com, that is producer Phil's favorite. Almost always written uh, articles by Tyler Durden, a, um, an anonymous account that posts some pretty good stuff. So here's the quote. You just heard him. He said, we know the laptop uh, was paid for by the private. I'm sorry. The uh, We know about the laptop. We know about this private phone. We're going to get into another video in just a second, which we'll share from our mutual friend there, uh, Steve. But pretty amusing. Uh, this is not the way you're supposed to do business. You're not supposed to put your name on it. You're not supposed to have it tie back to you if you're going to have some kind of a burner account. And I do want to note that we're talking about $5 million a couple of times. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's interesting. Peter Schweitzer, obviously not an FBI agent. We can put the the... the the piece back down. Schweitzer, not an FBI agent because espionage actually is a crime. You notice he says, forget about the criminal uh, aspect of it. Well, let's talk about the, you know, the, the espionage thing when espionage, in fact, is a federal crime. <laughs> I just always think it's funny when people get out over their skis on this kind of stuff. It's, uh, you can't help it. He's talking about the counterintelligence nature, which is to say the ties to the MSS. That was my target when I worked Chinese CI. 
I'm guessing you've probably at least been briefed on there are certain threats and it's like Russian, they don't have the KGB anymore. They have the GRU, they got the FSB, the Chinese, it's the MSS. Like that's the, that's the real bad guy in the, in the world. And that's who apparently he's taken cash from, or at least tied to. Yeah. <laughs> like Hunter, Hunter Biden is not good at anything. Like he's not even a good shakedown guy. Like, mm -hmm. His only tactic is basically saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? That's that's it. He can't even be like cool on this and just like roll in like uh, I'm an important person and I'm dignified and I'm just going to take this bag of cash and walk away. He has to and feels compelled to always throw out my father. When was the last time you said like my dad can bench press more than your dad? <laughs> that's this morning that's on the Dark Delight podcast. I think I said that. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, that's what he does. <laughs> His entire shtick is my dad could beat up your dad. Yeah, because he's the vice president or a senator yeah. or whatever. Uh, and he's a 53-year-old man. And I'm, I am very uh, fatigued about having to read about this guy or hear about this guy like he's this wounded bird that just fell out of the nest and it needs to be cared for when he's you know, nearing the age to collect Social Security. He's getting right on it. Uh, I think it actually, it reminds me of sort of an infantilization. They they keep pretending you say wounded bird, but they're acting like he's a child and needs to be protected by the media and so on. Um, and it, it's the same way that we're going to see something in the SCOTUS decision and the reactions to it, which was essentially people who can't take care of themselves need to be helped. You know, if you saw some of the other stuff we've done on the show, we talked about how um, they had him on, you know, analysis on CNN talking about, you know, he was a drug dealer. He's an addict. You have to treat addicts differently. You were a cop. Do you get to treat addicts very differently in the street because they're addicts? Is that kind of how that plays out? No, not at all. I mean, look, we have, uh, it's supposed to be equal justice under the law, the way that it works. And look, we've heard the same thing with, with president Trump. We, we, we are in the same system. Everybody needs to be held accountable for their own actions. Now, look, the fact that he has drug history or drug abuse and he's an addict it, it factors into any sort of dealing that you have with him you always know that that's going to be a calculus into you know why he was behaving or what, what sort of impacts were there on his decision making process but it's no different than dealing with a drunk driver who you pull over you can't they say, have a well, problem well, I mean, they're drunk they're I, drunk i was drunk so they, i can't be held accountable for driving drunk because i was drunk yeah and and it's, can you be held accountable for drunk driving in any accidents you do um unless your name is paul pelosi Ooh. Sick burn. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, or Ted Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, there's that. So, all right. So they're acting like there's this double standard. Have you heard the new kind of line that's been trotted out? The View did it the other day. Did you see that thing that, uh, what was her name? Anna Navarro was talking about? Yeah, I responded to her, her saying that where it's like, this story is about a father's love for a son. And I, mean, I think my response was something like, as a father of two sons, I can't tell you the amount of times that I sent them while they're on a crack cocaine binge to go collect bags of cash for me around the earth. That's just the way I do it. That's how I show my love. And and you're expecting pretty good outcomes, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and here's the thing too that they sort of try to divorce Hunter Biden from Joe Biden. Even if, when when this all comes apart and it eventually will, who knows when it's going to happen? There will be an attempt to say, well, Hunter's the bad actor. Joe was this pure as the driven snow public servant. Not true. The only reason that Hunter was able to pick up these bags of cash is because he claimed, and I'm sure with his father's knowledge, that he had some sort of influence with Joe. And even if Joe never received a single cent from any of these collections, it is as if he did, because 
he's not buying any green bananas there. Certainly he's been falling down quite a bit. And all the money that he would potentially be getting is going to go to his family when he passes on to the next life. And, you know, as a pro-abortion Catholic, well, we can debate where his next life's going to be. But uh, it's, it's all that wealth is going to be bequeathed to the second generation behind him anyway. So there's no difference functionally between him collecting bags of cash and then dying and giving them to Hunter or just Hunter getting it directly and funding his drug habit a little bit earlier. Plus, we're seeing some policy decisions that seem to be indicating that uh, there is a movement that way, uh, particularly things like Taiwan and some of the stances that we're seeing this this administration take. Yeah, yeah. Well, they've tried to walk back Taiwan quite a bit here, and I mean, I think I think once they they took the lid off the debt ceiling, uh, we have to go back to the credit card company and ask to have our limit extended more. So we sent Tony Blinken over to say, well, we don't uh, think that Taiwan's an independent country anymore, which was news to me if you've tracked anything that our president's talked about. He's he's fully authorized to turn his key and uh, send some nukes, it sounds like. But I, I guess his handlers uh, let him get off the leash a little bit. So that's scary. Um, you mentioned that uh, the argument is essentially that there's this big divide between the Hunter Biden situation and what's going on there. It has nothing to do with Joe. Uh, let's play the next video from our friend uh, John Solomon talking, I think, on Real America's Voice. And let's see what we think about that. Before it was turned over for the FBI, there had been some documents that law enforcement had gotten through other means. And one of those documents got leaked to me, and it had a cell phone number that Hunter Biden was paid for. So I figured, oh, this is my chance. Maybe I can, I've been trying to get fair comments from Hunter Biden. So I'm going to call the cell phone. So I called the cell phone, and guess who picked up the phone? Oh, boy. Joe Biden. Joe? Oh, Joe Biden. What? Boy, was he shocked when he got, uh, when he picked up the phone and found out it was me. He hung up pretty quickly. <laughs> What do you think? Uh, I in my head, I'm thinking of this is the most John Solomon way of doing that. Uh, that Bill Riley, uh, infamous clip of him being like, "F it, we'll do it live." I could just see John Solomon with the phone number, just saying like, "F it, I'm gonna call this number." And I mean, how I would have loved to hear the recording, the bumbling that would have gone on, and how quickly or did did he eloquently hang up the phone and say, "Hey, I gotta go," or did he just swipe it? Swipe it, off <laughs> or, or threw it down the toilet like you see in like some movie where they have to put it in the water right away. Right. Uh, John, yeah. yeah. John Solomon's great. And how many you talk to him fairly frequently or at least occasionally? Yeah. Yeah. Text with him and uh, appear on a show uh, pretty, pretty regularly. He has excellent sourcing. And that's kind of what you didn't catch. I mean, the audio is a little bit broken up on there. But what he's saying is that he had a source leak that information to him. And unfortunately, because we don't have investigations moving in a timely manner and we can't really count on DOJ to do the right thing, we can't count on the FBI to do the right thing, we're really relying on guys like John Solomon, who are very well connected into things. I'll call him up and share something with him and he'll come back to me and he'll give me more on the information right away. Um, and so that's the other thing I really love, that he's collaborative about it and he's got capabilities to, to go out there and confirm information. But imagine catching a phone number. And uh, I'm, have you ever, I've done this in investigations too. You're like, mm, let's just see who's on the other end of it. I'll set up a recorder, dial it up. And we used to call it smiling and dialing. You just, uh, you just punch in that number and put the phone on speaker and see what happens next. That had to have been absolutely shocking. Yeah. I mean, do you think that Joe Biden did the whole, like, how did you get this number? Or uh, do you think he has the awareness do you think to do John that? Solomon, I, John Solomon's pretty, pretty professional. I'm sure he said like, hi, John Solomon from just the news. But like, what if he had, what if he'd just been like, Hey, John. And then let Joe just ramble. Yes. And record. Well, and here's the other thing that we find. And and you and I have been in some some private conversations with some of these journalists a little bit. 
there's not a huge awareness of how to do the classic ruse. Do you want to tell people about like what the ruse is and maybe some good ones that you guys have done when you were doing it? Because it's it's a really powerful tool, but I I just it doesn't seem like they know it. No, I I, I think that they they assume that they have to be sort of almost adversarial that they're because they're, it'll eventually get to that if they're trying to expose something that's that's bad or that's going to be bad for that person. So they they kind of go in and, and show their hand. They'll say like, "Hi, I'm calling from." At, you know, at ABC News, uh, and I want to get your comments on uh, you beating your wife. And it's just over the top of the hammer. The the, the more uh, clever way, I guess, to go about it, or just you know, yeah, the, the way to, to ingratiate yourself to somebody as a ruse would be to say, hey, uh, there are some uh, allegations against you, but I think you're misunderstood. I, I would like to get your story out there. Um, and And when that person thinks that you're an advocate for them, they're at least going to give you um, a, a response that's something that you can use to a story and then and, and maybe lead you answering some questions that might might reveal and and look there, there's always uh you know you think you have the whole story until you hear the other side of it um so that there's never just a obviously one-way story so i think it would behoove a lot of these journalists to to go about it with a little more tact and they could be able to flesh out the details but also uh It'll it'll you know expose the, some of these uh, some of these guys because they're not going to clam up right away. They're going to be inclined to talk to you and and maybe reveal uh, what, what where their intents were. So when you're when you're working in a covert role or you're working in an undercover role, we always do this thing that's called cover for action. You ever heard that term? Yeah. And and it's a reason that you're there. And like you say, you give them cover for action. You're calling them up. Why are you calling me? Right. Every single phone call begins the same. I, I, there's some really funny comedy routines about it when. Uh, I can't remember who it is. I think it's Tom Segura talks about it. He's like, pick up the phone. And he talked to people that have never used a phone before. And they're like, ugh. And they make noises. And he's like, I know I talk and then you talk. The guy's like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, you have to explain how the phone works. But the phone works in the same way every single time. Every Think about every call you've ever made. You pick up the phone. You make a phone call. You reach out. Somebody else answers. And then you have a reason for the call, a cover for action. What is the, And if it, you know, especially if you're doing something insidious, if you're trying to keep them on the line, then you have questions that are going to go long form. If you are trying to you know, ascertain who's on the other end of it, you may have to play along. Telemarketers are really good at this. In fact, uh, telemarketers are excellent at that. And a lot of people will be on the phone with telemarketers longer than they planned on. Uh, even though they would naturally hang up, they're, you, they've got you answering questions. There's all these little tricks and tips. And for some reason, reporters seem to be unable to sort of utilize basic deception. And it's not even overt deception. It's just, like I said, a cover for action while they're calling. Uh, Pepe the Gray in, in the chat, who's always in there on, on our um, our morning shows, mentioned that uh, if John Solomon had a recording, probably wouldn't uh, be sharing that recording with anybody, or sh probably would rather. And, and my guess is, is that he would have been cautious to record it because we have one and two party consent rules, depending on where you are. If you don't know where the subject of the person who's receiving that phone call is, you could find yourself on the wrong side of that. Do you want to explain the party consent and how that works? Yeah, we've talked about that before. Uh, each state has a different requirements for uh, recording conversations. So if it's a one-party state, uh, that means that only one half of that conversation, if Kyle and I are having a conversation, um, and I want to record it, I can. And I don't need his permission. But if we are in a two-party state, then he needs to be aware and approve of me recording the conversation before I click record on my recorder. 
And if you're just going to call somebody up out of the blue, it's, it's a little different if there's law enforcement because there's law enforcement exemptions. So, uh, you know, I used to be able to do that. Yep. Even though in Florida, it's a two-party consent state, I could call somebody with a recorder rolling. Uh, but you'll always hear that uh, anytime I've talked to a journalist uh, who's who's wanting to use a recorder, they will not even ask what state I reside in, anything like that. They'll just say, hey, is it okay with you if I record? And I, and I think that they, they're doing that to cover their butts legally. Uh, and then also there's a, there's an honor component to it because you might be having a, an off the record or a non background conversation. Yeah, in which case then they'll still quote you if they're on the wrong side of the. Uh, uh, if the they work for the Washington Post, they will. Yes. Yeah, you had that happen recently, huh? Um, <laughs> and, and and you make a, the point, which is that uh, in person the rules are pretty well set because you're both physically in the same place, and so one party consent, obviously, we, you know, one party knows. Uh, what about no party consent? What does that usually take? Uh, a search warrant, unless it's Operation Flex. From the FBI, where right. you can just leave a recording device and walk away, and uh, that's considered okay and on on kosher. What do you think about this new thing? And we didn't have it; up, we don't have a story up on it, but it's worth asking about. You know, I just was on Infowars earlier this week, and we were talking. I talked with uh, Owen Troyer about sort of the Trump recording that's been leaked out. Any what, uh, what what has been your reflection on that? Have you listened? It's only about two minutes from CNN. Yeah, I, I listened to the recording, and then at first, you know, you're just going about like, well, what does this mean? Well, what does this mean? And uh, how does this come about? Is it, how's it going to impact? But then I think the next day there, it was revealed that that recording has nothing to do with the charges themselves. So it's just a smear. We're, yeah. We're just back to it's, it's another smear. We're going to put that up there. I mean, if anything, it should be a launching point for, okay, you, you guys dropped a, a recording. We're one of the 15 recordings of Hunter Biden or one of the two recordings of Joe Biden that allegedly exist and uh, of them trying to, make these deals going on. So, uh, you know, if we're going to do uh, a tit for tat, then uh, I need to see see something from uh, from the Biden investigation. Because well. we're obviously very fair. Do you think that uh, that we're talking about a DOJ leak or is this an FBI leak? What's your instinct? What's your gut on that? Um, I think DOJ. I think that it's just there. there's too much um, political actors there. I think the FBI is the heat's a little high right now. Um, and and they they don't want to come under any extra scrutiny. I think that a lot of this stuff is already with the DOJ too, because these investigations are going on so far. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's just my my gut. If I had to guess, I had the same feeling. All right, we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about that uh, that Notre Dame that uh, that uh, fun time of bringing people into a new college and why the United States Supreme Court has to get involved. If you pull up story number three there, Ryan, from the Washington Examiner, this is a piece by Kellen Dees, a, a Supreme Court reporter. And Jeremiah Puff says the Supreme Court bans the affirmative action in a ruling against race conscious college admissions, because that's what's most important is what your race is. It says here uh, that the Supreme Court banned the consideration of race as part of the admissions decisions in colleges, including Harvard University and University of North Carolina. Those were the two that were sort of in the uh, in the the case specifically, which is going to splay out across the rest of the uh, the colleges in this country. And I guess the, the federal government has some stake in this because of the amount of money that goes in from all the different, um, what do you call them, you know, Pell Grants and all the scholarship type things that we've gotten the federal government involved in. Uh, yet another thing that has not gotten any cheaper. Uh, in this particular story, we're saying Chief Justice John Roberts, he wrote for the six-member majority. There's a really good um, uh, concurring opinion by uh, Clarence Thomas as well, but it just says that they're undoing the lasting impacts of this landmark case, which was uh, 1978 regents of the University of Southern California, Burris Baki, I think B-A-K-K-E. Is that how it's pronounced, Steve? Do you know? 
I have no idea. I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, Let's just quote here. It just says that for the majority that Harvard's and UNC's admissions program violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which has often been used as a cudgel to come after some of the uh, conservative stuff. So I'll bring it back up on there. What are are your your basic instincts? What is your your thoughts on this as we start removing race as an affirmative action? We saw a lot of squawking on the other side. Yeah, you know, I I think the 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 temptation for this conversation is to well, we're we're going to talk about Martin Luther King content of character and it should be about merit and like all those qualifiers aside, let's talk about some other things I think that are a little bit more interesting. Uh, I think that the fact that they have used these affirmative action standards to admit people who are uh, less than qualified to enter school, mm-hmm. and now we've seen the tuition prices skyrocket from schools has resulted in people uh, taking out loans in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to attend universities, which they have no hope to succeed at. And therefore they they wind up not completing their degree and they're still saddled with this debt. And they're not going to be in a position to get a job now where they're gonna be able to pay it off in any sort of timely fashion. So I think there's a component there that we need to we need to address and i think that's that's tied to the the price of college but it's also not not doing this uh, bait and switch where we say ha ah, you're you're going to harvard now and then when you when you're really qualified for you know uc santa barbara that, which is that a great be... school by the way the banana slugs there's nothing against uc santa barbara we want to make sure yeah. all of our banana slug listeners know that uh, it's not a, but it a is degree. economic slavery then don't you yes. think it's an it's economic and it's also tied to this whole the the degree is it is it a degree that's that's going to set you up to do something or is it just uh, a wallpaper so that you can say that you have a, a degree from an esteemed university and if there's really you know how many baristas have Ivy League degrees and it's did you learn anything that you can actually use and I think that. Uh, the second component to this, you know, outside of this this student loan crisis that we're finding ourselves in, um, I think is going to be the unintended consequence here that that, that uh, I'm going to be happy about, and uh, they're they're going to contrive ways to bring people into schools uh, to hit their quote unquote diversity quotas, um, and I, I think for a long time the uh, the corporate world it's illegal to give an IQ test to mm-hmm. hire somebody. Uh, so they contrive this college system, which people essentially take out loans because their SAT scores get them into a certain school, and the SAT is an IQ test. Yes. And then they complete that school, and then the they get hired by the corporate world, and the corporate world has then put a couple of middlemen in there to get their IQ test and saddle a person with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And they're going to still want to hit their uh, IQ slash diversity quotas. And if the university is not going to be able to do that for them, I think you're going to see the corporate world say, well, the college degree isn't that important anymore. And then micro wins, which that means America wins. So I want to issue an on-the-spot correction about University of Santa Barbara. It occurred to me that the banana slugs are UC Santa Cruz, I'm pretty sure. And so uh, Santa Barbara, their mascot is actually the gaucho. I looked that up right now. That's what I was typing on. As if you're watching on a Rumble channel, you saw my eyes look away from Steve's excellent answer. And I had to go and confirm. I thought, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. I'm pretty sure. Although UC Santa Cruz and UC Santa Barbara, lovely places to go to school, um, even if you are in a completely ideologically captured area. And I'm not 
confident that those degrees mean anything outside of the state of California. But uh, a lot of degrees are getting watered down. We're watering it down. And I think we're also setting people up for failure in this. And I mentioned this to Tracy Beans earlier. The scariest thing about that, in addition to what you just mentioned, is that you now have set people up for possible failure if they do maintain the rigorous academic standards that they're supposed to, right? We're going to have people come into the school. They're not going to perform. And it's going. they might have succeeded somewhere if you could, if your University of Oklahoma material, I went to University of Oklahoma, so I'll say that specifically, and uh, and you get brought into Harvard and you didn't have the ability to do so, and you don't succeed at Harvard, it's actually going to be far more crushing than being successful at the level that you were actually appropriate, appropriately able to train up to. And so you, you actually rob people from their capabilities or you give them a watered down degree. Either one of them is going to be awful for everybody because reducing the standard doesn't make it better. It's pretty FBI stuff. That's what our buddy Jenny Moore likes to do. <laughs> it is. I, I, and I, could you make the case that uh, the the gnashing and wailing, uh, gnashing of teeth and wailing that has gone on since this decision came out from the left, um, there's been this trend, and we've seen it statistically, that the college enrollment numbers have gone down pretty significantly in the last few years. And I think that that is tied to what people were basically doing remote learning, and, and they're like, I'm not paying for this, and then they, they just don't see the value of the, of the college degree anymore. Um, I think the people that are embracing that more so, it's white people. It's white people. So they're they're still wailing about minorities not getting into college, and we're going to fight to put them into college. And I'm like, well, isn't that functionally you arguing that they should be able to be saddled with $200,000 of debt to go to a place where they're probably not going to get a degree from because they're not qualified for that? Meanwhile, your kid will skip college and enter the workforce and be just fine. So... <laughs> Aren't you arguing to set them back even further by what you're arguing for? They can't see that though, and and you know that's why I love guys like um, like Mike Rowe and the Make America Work Foundation. I think is what it's called. We'll have to pull it up at some other time. But Mike Rowe, maybe, Mike Rowe for president, man. Yeah, he's the best. Also, I just love his voice. Do you know that he was a uh, he was an operatic baritone? Yes. Have you ever heard of his recording where he does the Mister Grinch uh, voicemail? I have not. Oh, he he sings the entire Mister uh, You're a Mean One, Mister Grinch, uh, as a voicemail recording while drinking a beer. It's incredible. I mean, yeah, Micro for president is easy. Uh, what a likable <laughs> dude. I, I just, he, he's got such a rational take. I know that's why people love him. That's why he has the audience, the following. But there, there is a place where we are going to have to move to, uh, to letting people go back to trade schools again. I sat down actually, oh, this is interesting. I, I haven't brought this up with you. I flew back from New Hampshire. I, I went up there and, and took that trip. We were both on the road at the same time. So I went up in, to New Hampshire and I think you were in Nashville or Memphis? Nashville. And I'm flying back and I'm sitting next to a high school principal who was probably a leftist based on sort of the general instinct that I would have out of there. Although I, he was a really nice man and I he's my kind of guy. Maybe not a leftist, maybe just sort of like a progressive or a liberal type. His wife uh, was a feminist representative in Illinois. And I didn't even look up his last name, but he was super nice. His son was very nice. They were going out for a job interview. His dad was, you know, son was in a hard science, data science type thing. And we're sitting there talking about shop class and about home ec and apprenticeships. And I asked him, because I was very curious, this is just one random dude that I happen to be sitting on an airplane with. Like, what's the story with those classes? Are you bringing them back? Is there any interest in them? And his statement was, is that it's very, very hard to get someone to come in and teach those because first they have to get certified and then they don't get paid that much. And if you're an engineer or if you're a, a carpenter or if you're somebody that's in that field, you can make more money in the field than you can teaching it, obviously. 
And so the only options you really have are people that are in retirement, and then you got to replace them. And there's kind of all these hurdles. Unfortunately, you talk about the uh, administrative procedures of it. They've created, you know, a master's or a teaching certificate that has to be done when these are hard skills that should be apprentice-based. But he did mention that they have these really cool new sort of smaller micro programs, teaching kids how to build and frame houses, teaching them basically they come in, they raise money, they build an entire house for, through their senior year, through this apprenticeship with like a handful of students. They sell the house and the profit on the sale funds the purchase of the next thing and the materials to do it again, which is basically teaching them how to run a business as well as a contractor or as a builder. And... And that was really like heartening to me. That was one of the nicest, like that, that made me feel good. Like that that's going on in Illinois. That it's going on in a place that's not too far away from Chicago. That seems like, you know, kind of a lost cause that they are, there is a swing back towards this sort of apprenticeship and hard skills and plumbers and electricians and so on. Yeah. There's, there's a school that's not too far away from here. And I know, cause we, we use their uh, facilities to stage for a giant uh, SWAT operation. Nice. But uh, I was walking through the, the, it was, you know, in the summertime and they had a whole wall and they had a program where kids were getting certified as uh, machinists and uh, nurses aides. And it, it was just all these different sort of professions that they were able to do. And I remember walking this, it was pretty rural. It's pretty large school. I mean, I'm sure you know, it just pulled in everybody from that, that general area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, like, I, I, this is this is the way to do this because no, school isn't for everybody. Uh, the the woman who I go to who cuts my hair, I mean, she she said she was in high school and they had like a a barber program that she did. She says I didn't want to be in school. I knew this is what I wanted to do. And yeah, I didn't cosmetology should be an option. Yep, and it just kind of turbocharged her career because she didn't wind up wasting her time and then dropping out of school and then not having a degree. Uh, and then having to go back at a later time or they're or going off to find herself in some sort of soft science degree in college and get, getting saddled with debt. She went straight into the workforce and and is good what she does. I mean, she, she does a good job in my hair. And every time I go there, I have to wait. So I mean, she's, she's obviously killing it. Yeah, that's that's actually the big key there. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a SWAT staging. That's kind of like the, that triggered that. I forgot that I put this video up. Ryan, if we could pull up the video of the uh, – there was body cam footage. You and I did a, uh, a show – not too long ago, where we talked about the Super Bowl of masculinity. This was the gentleman who uh, rolled in and saved the lives of many by addressing an active shooter at the school in uh, in Nashville. And now we've got the body cam footage from Allen, Texas. This was the mall shooter. Folks, you may have seen some of the pictures there. Um, but this was a, a guy that just started shooting indiscriminately at a mall. Uh, and this was the story of the, the Mexican white supremacist. You recall he supposedly had uh, Nazi tattoos on his body, but no pictures of his face. Obviously, you know, never post that and so that was the story it actually was breaking when i was on timcast and the video from the body cam of the officer came out have you seen this video yet Mm-mm. i want to see it fresh. fantastic okay so here it comes this is the video of the body cam footage here i would say this is a contender for super bowl of masculinity uh ryan whatever you're ready we can roll that one y'all be good okay and make sure you wear your seatbelts when mommy's driving okay you understand okay okay all right all right you be good Wow. 145, I think we got shots fired at the outlet mall. I got people running. I'm on foot. I need everybody I got. What you got? Is we a mass shooter? Got 
What's your initial reaction on that? Man, just that brought everything in. You could hear the shots. The, the, the most telling thing is it, the shots are getting louder as he's moving closer and closer to it. And you realize that that's a guy who's, like we talked about before, he threw on his vest that day. He suited up. He drank his cup of coffee on the way to work. He didn't know that it was a Super Bowl today. And when they called his name, he ran to the fight. He didn't post up behind a pillar and call for SWAT. You can hear him on the radio saying, like, we might have a mass shooter. Send me everybody you got. And he immediately inserted himself into a position of leadership there. And then, look, we got the guy who took the shot that needed to be taken and was happy with it. Like, the, he, he, there was no decision there. And I've always said that. Like, people have said, do you think you can shoot somebody? I was like, I, I decided that a long time ago. Their decision is, I'm just delivering the round at this point. Right. You've already and, decided. You, you told me that and it was something I thought was a really nice frame. You told me that the first round in your gun is already fired. It's just you're just waiting for the target. Yes. Yes. It's I mean, it's already been it's just a question of the timing, you know, and, and it's up to them. They've made the decision that's going to and I'm just the delivery system of that round to to put them down. And he went back. He said, you know, I put I, I did my job. I did my job. Yep. He's like, damn, bro, I, you know, I, I put him down and. And, I, and good on him, man. And that guy's, you know, and you talk about stress. He physically exerted himself. He had to run there. That's the thing that I was going to bring it up. You've done a lot of SWAT operations. I know you guys try to move slowly and smoothly. That's the goal. But you've had to do a run up and then do a shooting. Talk to people about how that adds to the game. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, sort of the stress inoculation component that they try to do in training because you can't prepare for the fear and the, and the uh, adrenaline dump that you're going to get where your hands are going to shake uncontrollably. You just, you, you're not going to be able to, to really... Uh, replicate that so they have you physically exert yourself during stress inoculation but this guy actually had to go through physical strain to then get to the place where he was going to be emotionally uh, pressed so he had a double and that's a guy who prepared himself obviously that he could take off and run in his equipment he you know he was not a walking heart attack who is you know is, is, is just downing a dozen donuts every single day so he's he's a he's a professional he grabbed his his long gun it was staged so he was ready. He, it was so clearly a situation that he thought of. And the using he was like, do we have a mass shooter? Do we have a mass shooter? Because that was going to change the dynamic. Because if it's, you know, uh, just gangbangers that are you know crossfire with each other or if it's a hostage situation. But when he said mass shooter, he knows that, all right, officer safety is no longer my, my prime directive here. My right. focus is I have to address the threat. And if that means that, and that means I have to get in a gunfight now. 
and I have the training, I have the equipment, and I tore the oath, and that's incumbent on me to, to do that now. And if I have to lay my life down, then that's that's just the way that the, the brakes fall. Yeah, 100%. I, I don't know if you noticed this too. One of the things that I picked up on watching that was that there was maybe like a three-quarter of a second pause between between him uh, seeing the guy and then taking the shot. And it was like just the right amount of time to make the decision. Like, this is deliberate. This is what I'm going to do. He didn't like run up into it and, you know, gun up and, and go. So he's not like running into the fight with the hands gunned up. He runs up, he assesses, he sees what's happening. And then it's like, bang, bang, bang. Then he gets behind the cover and he like leans out and he probably hit him on the first rounds as well because there's reaction and you don't hear a lot coming back at him. But he shoots until the thread is stops moving. And, you know, the guy had his hand on the gun until, until the cops get up there. Uh, yeah. Anyway, just... Great contender for the Super Bowl of masculinity. I know we like to highlight heroic cops when it happens. There's a lot of people that are saying the wrong thing. That dude killed it. I mean, and he was talking and, to and kids about the kids, telling the kids to wear seatbelts. Exactly. Beforehand. That's the transition. Like, just, just like that, man. Like one second, you're like officer friendly and community oriented policing to mass shooter. And that guy was ready. So yeah, he's definitely in contender to go to Disneyland today. One more thing that I saw on there was that he was carrying a magazine that was also uh, double strapped to another magazine, which is to say that the rifle probably weighed an extra pound or two more than normal. And so maybe that's how he normally trains. But a lot of times people will carry a weapon system that is not the way that they train with the weapon system. You train light and then if you carry heavy. So he might be changing something up in his his mix. I'm not a big fan of that, but I do love the idea of having extra mags. And if he doesn't carry them on his kit, which he probably doesn't as a police officer, you know, uh, you don't want to run out of bullets in a gunfight like that. And you, you heard like people could hear how many rounds went down range and it was not, not a few. It was multiple three round bursts there. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, he was able to get to it quickly and where he was going to, there was going to be some noise issues. Like it was going to be some echoes to so actually like get to the threat was going to be an issue. So and we, uh, that, that cloud, I don't know if that clip was continuous, mm -hmm. I think uh, but it was. he might've that. Okay. So he, he was able to find it pretty quickly, which you could hear the echoes going on. I think it would be there was a challenge there, another element to it. Yeah. And that was relatively short time addressing, but obviously you heard how many shots that guy got off in a, in a few seconds and then how many shots it took to respond. It's not a one shot kill. It's not a one shot solution. Uh, even no. with the rifle, you know, that was a reasonable rifle engagement distance because maybe 75 yards tops, which is about where that stuff happens. But, you know, thank God that guy was there. And uh, like I say, I like, I like highlighting excellence in law enforcement when they do the thing they're supposed to do, which is that we expect men to run towards gunfire and solve problems. And they did. No, he did. But he did it to go protect the woman and the kids that he was just talking to, you know, the more valuable assets. Back to what we first talked about. 100%. 100% accurate. All right. Uh, speaking about uh, cops and sort of the heroic nature of being a regular law enforcement, we, we moved out of that space. Now we're doing former Federal Friday type stuff with uh, Steve Friend. Will you tell people about your book, how it's selling, and where they can find it? And we've probably got that graphic, too. Yeah, the uh, book is available on Amazon. It's called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. It uh, is now out in, uh, it, six, uh, it was June 13th was the uh, the published date. I've uh, had some good feedback, good good reviews on Amazon for people. I've had some invitations to come do some book signing events. I uh, just encourage everybody to pick up a copy of it. Uh, everybody, I've talked to multiple people that said they read it in one sit down. Uh, so it's definitely lighter uh, summertime poolside reading. Uh, you can learn about uh, my experience as a police officer, as an FBI agent, and then the, the more heavier, heavy content of the whistleblowing is the second half. But uh, there's some good stories in there that I've told a million times, and they're pretty well edited down. That's kind of the nature of cop stories, as we find. I've got I do a show called Roll Call with uh, Alpha Warrior, and and we you know cops know how to tell their stories. That's the fun thing about it. Um, 
Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to wrap this sucker up. I do appreciate you all sticking with us and joining us from the dark to light. Uh, we want to thank Steve Friends for joining us as our special guest. He's a uh, an author and a fellow. I found out you're the G domestic intelligence fellow. Did you know that? Domestic intelligence and security services. That's right. At the uh, Center for Renewing America, you can follow him on Twitter at Real Steve Friend. You can go to his truth, which is real underscore Steve Friend. Is that right? Correct. All right. Got them both out there. Uh, Find his book. The books will be in the show notes, which I'll put out very shortly. And uh, I do want to read a five-star review from our Apple podcast. We're at 576 five-star reviews. This one says, always brings the receipts. It's by HowBSDV. I have no idea, but that's actually D. Stonk, who I believe is probably in the chat right now. It says, Kyle, love your show. Really appreciate you and all the suspendals who have put it on the line. Thanks for continuing to share. Not just great info. It's credible info because you always bring the receipts. God bless all the suspendables and their families. And of course, in the live chat as well. Thanks, Steve. Uh, really appreciate you joining. Folks, we do this for you. I want to say a couple of quick thank yous. Obviously, I thank you to Steve for joining me. I want to say thanks to Ryan Matta for producing the show. And I want to say thanks to my brother, Casey Serafin. If you guys like that piano piece that, uh, that comes in, that is the opening theme that we've adopted. That was actually uh, written and performed by my younger brother, who is an incredibly talented musician, and he sent it over, and I didn't even tell him I started using it, but I want to give him credit, so it's in the credits right now. Casey Serafin with his uh, outstanding piano piece. We will see you again on the Kyle Serafin Show on Monday. Folks, we always stream 8.30, Texas America. That's 9.30 for those of you on the East Coast, 6.30 on the West Coast. We'll see you again. Have a safe weekend, y'all. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash kyleserafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at Kyle Serafin.